are you dead? Are you sleeping? Are you dead? Are you sleeping? Are you dead? Are you sleeping? I sure hope you are dead. Now, 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 You were laying in your coffin like a fat in a coffin. I said, do you believe what you're saying? Yeah, right now, but not that I... Are you dead? Are you sleeping? Are you dead? Are you sleeping? Are you dead? Are you sleeping? God, I sure hope you are dead. I keep putting the, not putting the O in. There's the O. There it is. Got it. Killed it. Uh, human animal hybrids, folks. We gotta we gotta watch out about human animal hybrids. For the kids out there, there's two things that uh, there's three things that George Bush liked to talk about uh, during um, his State of the Union addresses. Uh, and it's very funny because he would bring these things up that seemed like hugely important, like uh, potentially game-changing visionary plans or fears, and then they would just be forgotten. He never even pursued them. It was all the war in Iraq and then uh, Social Security privatization, a tax cut, war in Iraq, uh, Social Security privatization, and immigration reform. And he got the first two, and then the second two he ate shit on. But he would go in front of Congress and the American people and talk about human-animal hybrids. We have to guard against the, the danger of potentially making human-animal hybrids. I don't know if you guys are up on any of the latest uh, human-animal hybrid trends, but that one really hasn't materialized. He also liked to talk about hydrogen cars, which we just... Not even close. We, we, we eventually settled on incredibly expensive, uh, luxury-coated, lithium-powered electronic vehicle uh, vehicles with insufficient battery infrastructure, and now an insane subsidy system. Where now all they're getting a the auto companies are are stop they're stopping producing relatively efficient electric cars to make electric SUVs. That's where we ended up on solving that problem. Well done. I don't know. I guess the hydrogen problem is it blows up, right? So maybe that's why we never got the hydrogen cars. But there was a while there during the Bush years when everyone thought hydrogen cars were going to happen. Did that hit a technological barrier or did it literally just threaten to destroy the petrodollar? Because if that's the answer, then we know why it didn't happen. And the other thing he talked about that we've now got in a privatized form, uh, Mars colonies. Now we just have fucking carnival barkers and frauds like Musk who have no ability or intention of doing it, uh, using it as a utopian horizon. Oh, right, yeah, they get to make more. Uh, another thing, the reason they're embracing EVs is because they can use a non-union workforce to build them because they're not covered by the uh, the UAW contract. Human-animal hybrid. Yeah, Newt Gingrich was talking about moon colonies in 2012, and that is kind of the cute thing about Newt Gingrich. And there is, like, no one is entirely evil. And certainly nobody imagines that the world that they're trying to make is a bad one. And they might be, you know, motivated by some basic evil alignment that they probably aren't even aware of, but they don't know that. So, like, the Nazis had a vision of uh, the future. Uh, it was sort of a combination of, you know, like, tech utopianism and then, uh, like, feudal, uh, uh, noble, the return of, like, a feudal noble class. So, like, nerds can stay in the city and build rocket ships and then the, the chads, the jocks, the warriors could go out and uh, subdue the slobs uh, on, the, on the steps. Because that is the question of any utopian society that has abolished uh, 
like conflict either between states or between classes within a state. What do you do with your elite class? How do they keep themselves busy? Because they like different things. There's a fundamental nerds versus jocks divide within our elite that is like cognitive and social. And it's not these are the smartest and best of anything. They are the ones who represent these values. Like at one point, you know, the, 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 uh, the jock nerd uh, alliances that took over societies were made up of the smartest and the best athletes. Uh, the uh, Kenokian Society in the Mississippi Valley, we talked about this when we were reading Dawn of Everything. Uh, they had this like tributary state in the Mississippi Delta that had uh, like huge temple building, temple complexes, uh, 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 residences for elites, uh, extractive agriculture, all the stuff that you see in the early uh, uh, Meso uh, Middle Americans or the early Mesoamerican cities and early uh, Middle Eastern uh, cities, and China too. Uh, and it collapsed after a couple hundred years and was never rebuilt. And that really is the distinction between North America and uh, the rest of the world by the time of uh, contact between Europe and uh, uh, the Americas, is that that tributary society collapsed and wasn't rebuilt, as opposed to in Eurasia, where every tributary collapse was followed by the creation of a new tributary state. But anyway, this Cahokian society was... It is speculated, I don't think we know, but it's a very good story anyway, that the, the basis of this whole situation, this extractive economy, which took people who had lived, you know, uh, in bands and were able to tra live and sustain themselves at, at band level and, and like kin level, and then would come together cyclically for exchange in a, in a fixed position. And while they did that, they would do uh, rituals of reaffirmation of bonds between each other. You know, like this is how you get the situation where there are clans that extend throughout huge geographic areas and go between tribes. It's so that you can travel and always have some sort of local connection. And those local connections are forged during these uh, ritual meetings. And sports is part of it, specifically this game called Chucky, which is involved uh, taking uh, javelins, basically, and trying to spear them through uh, the ring of uh, the hole in a spinning like stone wheel. Like you're trying to fucking throw a javelin through this hole. Uh, and the, the Cahokian society gets fixed there and becomes extractive uh, due to the accumulation of debts revolving around gambling on Chucky games. And who are the who's benefiting from that early arrangement? The best athletes, the best Chucky players, and the people who uh, bet on it correctly, who engaged in the game structure uh, most advantageously. And of course, like this is what right wingers, reactionaries think they're hearkening for. Is this sort of like purity? But what they don't realize is once you get to capitalism, the line between uh, like actual. Uh, like what a person does with their time related to, you know, the system that they are part of has become so drastically uh, abstracted. Like our literal specific labor contributes to our uh, economic engines uh, to a much, much, much smaller degree than the elites of previous iterations of class rule did. And... That means that at the top is just like the children of the children of the children of the children, which means that they have had any connection to the virtues that had been crafted through that struggle to take and hold power have been completely removed and abstracted and turned into automatic processes. So we're literally, we're dysgenically selecting the worst elite possible, which is why any attempt to codify the current elite structure uh, through appeals to social Darwinism and the need to, you know, uh, make sure that, that we 
uh, have the most eugenically perfect people to see the future, to, 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 to travel through space and all this shit. No, you have the most genetically perfect people to sit in front of a computer. That's it. That's what you've selected for. You've selected for passivity. You've, so, you've selected for uh, an arid abstraction that cannot effectively engage with the world except through all these layers of technology. And they'll say, oh, yes, but we'll always have the technology. But at a certain point, the technology strips you of any human involvement at all, any human uh, space that you have not been instrumentalized. So that's what they're, they think they're going to preserve, you know, this legacy of, of virtues won in battle and toil and, and like through, you know, the will to power. But they're actually enthroning a bunch of fucking uh, zombie sheep who are going to get their brains scooped out by their own fucking immersion blenders. They're fucking Wi-Fi enabled immersion blenders. They're going to become Wi-Fi connected vat grown human husks. All the while having a pathetic internet culture telling each other that they're, oh, we're actually the based inheritors of human civilization, even though they're actually sitting in the fucking uh, living tomb of, of like the human spirit. So that's why that, you know, if you are self-consciously identifying with, with class hierarchy as the inevitable and fundamental structure of human relations, if you think that that is, is fixed and unchanging, then you are an enemy of humanity. Because what you're really defending is the algorithm. You think you're defending uh, humanity, but you're really just defending the accruisance of a civilization that is always uh, dominated by a uh, a corrupt, decadent, and uh, unjustly enthroned elite. No matter how, what meritocratic dance you play, uh, or, or how you're, you're, the hoops you go through, you reassert a unworthy caste benefiting from the labor of people who through the struggle of their lives are accumulating actual meaningful uh, abilities, uh, actual effective ways to stop the total destruction of the biome and reverse it even. That's only being made outside of power structures because power is synonymous with ease, with comfort, with disconnection dis, dis from oneself, one's surroundings, everybody else in one's life. So the closest thing these people have to a fashion of an idea of a human utopia is the Jetsons. It's uh, it's it's the Epcot Center moon base where where. Uh, Tommy and Frankie are sitting around the, and playing Parcheesi uh, in a in a bubble on the moon, and they've got little uh, laser beanies or something. That's it. Techno technology uh, enshrining what the the pleasures of a twentieth century American beneficiary of uh, imperial domination, uh, suburban comfort. Uh, and total isolation. But there is something cute about it and childish and like and 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 relatable. And you can see how someone could imagine with that in their head getting there being a politically virtuous path. And yeah, stuff like the moonlight. He wrote a book about like the future of, of uh like what a, he he wrote a futurist manifesto about like what the near future America would look like. This was in the 90s, right, when he was big, when he was like, this guy might be president someday. And he talked about how, like, oh, there'll be a diagnostic chair in your house. And you, instead of going to the doctor, you just sit in it and a bunch of sensors tell you how you're doing. And, you know, uh, essentially a chair, wall-E. He just described different ways that, like, the uh, furniture in your home would bring things to you. And we are trying to construct that, but in the janky busted uh, uh, infrastructure deficient way that we can in a like a stripped down state and a pirated uh, privatized 
order where the you know the vision that these people have is the vision of NASA in the fifties in the sixties. It's it's the vision of the Keynesian military uh, Fordist state that we have been strip mining for the past forty years for parts. So that means instead of press a button and you get uh, food materializing out of a hole in the wall, you press a button and an immigrant on a motorcycle drives down to a restaurant and brings it over to your house because you pressed a button. That is what we got instead of that. And we get uh, Elon Musk selling fake tickets to Mars as the Martian colonies that these guys fantasized about. But you can see sketched out the vision of the whole thing. And uh, our phones, our, our cell phones, that's what we got instead of the like digital interface that was going to revolutionize our subjectivity that we imagined in the future. And all of those things, uh, they represent the same consumer experience as the vision promised, but involve instead of a, a fully automated uh uh, technological process that involves no human labor. It's animated by vast, vast levels of hyper-exploitation of human labor. And that's always what's embedded in the fantasy of uh, automated capitalism. The only way you get to that fantasy, this is the great irony, the only way you get to the Jetsons' fantasy although it would not be that isolated, it would not reproduce that like suburban uh, psychotic loneliness because it wouldn't have, it wouldn't win if it did, you know, like a, a communism that could take control of the means of production is going to build a social imaginary that is not going to want to reinforce those patterns of, of atomization. Uh, but that, that level of comfort and ease uh, and that, and that, lack of friction between people and between an people in their environment that technology is promising us. The only way you get that is through uh, humans taking power over the, uh, the technological supply chain. And there is no point, and, the, and these guys will admit it, there's no point in this progression where we take power. We only hand over the reins to the AIs which is really just them uh, confessing without saying so that they've already surrendered to the AI in the form of the algorithmic imperative to extract profit maximally at every point in every moment. Now that, people say, uh, what's neoliberalism? What's late capitalism? And you can say it's, it's that moment. It's when all other prerogatives have been overridden everywhere. And of course, the rejoinder to that is always, uh, that's always been how capitalism is. What's different? And the difference is not the imperative at the heart of the system. That's always there. What is different is the lack of points of resistance within these greater systems that capitalism is embedded in. Our economic, our political, our cultural institutions that are filled with human beings. And human beings who have to form they have to connect the circuit. They have to be there to connect the circuit metabolically and cognitively. They have to do the actions and make the decisions that computers to this point can't because they do not have anything other than this single prerogative powering them. And we push back through our institutions to some degree or another. And uh, during the, the Fordist compromise years after the, the war, these imperative to, to extract profit at every point was not uh, extinguished. It was merely controlled and reduced and pushed back against by robust institutions of governance and regulation like the federal government, like post-Wagner labor movement. Those things dissolved away. And so the, the, those uh, resistance points are now gone. So that means that the, the imperative that was always there is now the only thing. It is now the only thing that people at positions of power have to uh, reckon with when they're thinking about what to do. They don't have to triangulate between that and other demands by other constituencies because those constituencies have been depoliticized 
uh, demobilized and replaced by price signals in a market. And if that's the only thing you're getting, then the only imperative that will be followed by any person is going to be maximizing profit, which means we have already been taken over. We have all the, the, the singularity already happened. Skynet already became aware. You can argue about when. It's sometime after the oil shock. You got to say the oil shock of 1973 is where the pistol goes off. We can argue all day about what causes uh, the the specific shape of the oil crisis and why oil is the thing that sets it off, but that is what sets it off. Like the tremors are already occurring earlier than that. And you see with Nixon doing wage and price controls, this attempt to bottle up this problem of trying to equalize uh, capitalism away from the United States now that you have created an actual networked global system, which means you've got to start doing things like creating uh, uh, consumer economies in uh, former col- formerly dominated places. unless Because in, if you don't do that, overproduction at the center will tip the whole thing over. But how do you do that? How do you manage that when you have constituencies in the United States that have grown used to gaining some percentage of uh, profits and, and laying claim to the accompanying political power that comes from those profits? They had to be dealt with. And what made that go from a, uh, a simmering crisis to a permanent condition of decline was the oil crisis. So you can argue, at what point from then do you have a system where, oh, the final resistance has been defeated here. There will be no internal uh, challenge to the full, final uh, domination of humanity by capital. The fall of the Soviet Union, I think, is probably the, uh, the top candidate, in my opinion. Uh, because that does remove the last uh, state entity that provides any resistance to capitalist imperatives at the level of national, uh, international relationships, affairs, and as a result, trade. Because you have the non-aligned world as, as this zone of contention. And that disciplines all actors down through the chains of the United States uh, governing institutions, political and economic. Gone. And once that happens, we're there. We're in, we're in there. But uh, that should not be, as I often say, that should not be dispiriting. It should be liberating. Because it means you don't have to depend on uh, these things fixing themselves. Uh, you can depend on yourself responding to changing conditions under these this permanent crisis. Like you have the power, and nobody else is really going to be able to resist what comes. They can only adapt. We're all going to have a chance to do that, and that's scary. But every you know, every moment in human history is scary. Like we talk about how oh, this is the first generation to feel like there's no future. Uh, in the depths of the Cold War, the 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 cultural uh, shadow of the bomb is kind of hard to overestimate. I mean, they were t- teaching kids how to get underneath desks. Like And this is at the height of American prosperity where there was a vision of a future that people believed in. You know, the fucking Space Needle is, is a monument to it. Uh, but there was this cloud around it that, like, we're going to kill ourselves before we get there. But a really good uh, candidate for a year that this happens, that Skynet becomes self-aware, is uh, 1991, which is when the Soviet Union falls. And also when 
da 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 Operation Desert Storm occurs. Holy crap. I just checked to make sure and confirm this, but 1991 also, as I suspected, the release date of the film Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Motherfucking James Cameron. A true seared visionary. The American Napoleon. It's just... It is. It speaks to our lack of agency relative to the systems of control that we live under that our Napoleon is a fucking film director because that's the only place you can exercise that will to power that Napoleon held. It has been bred out of us to want those things. But yes, he saw it. Skynet, self-aware, 1991. Do-do-do-do-do. Do-do-do-do-do. Because once you get this, the desert post-desert storm, new world order in place, and then hand it over to fucking uh, uh, Bill Bill Clinton to give it the gloss of liberal uh, uh, virtue, to say, don't worry, guys, this is not the old Reaganite blood death war machine. This is a new system that seeks to impose uh, democratic values on the world. Actually, we're doing the good stuff. Uh, we're doing good sort of interventions now. Don't worry about it. We're going to beat up those pesky Serbs. Hey, you guys don't think that you need NATO now that the war's over? You don't think that you need a defense pact? You don't think you need a reason to... Uh, uh, um, you don't think you need to rely on American military power? You think you can just stop? Uh, there's these Serbs we got to blow up because they're being mean to everybody. Turkey is doing the same thing to the Kurds at the same moment, but just not even an agenda item. And of course, Rwanda gets looked back, looked on because the U.S. doesn't have that kind of strategic interest there. Uh, but where there's strategic interest, there's a fake moral quandary and a, a fake re responsibility to protect. And then we get this new bipartisan death machine uh, and the beauty part is, is that you can, when you're in power, you can imagine that you're doing the good sort of uh, warfare, not the bad sort. And this, of course, goes for Republicans, too. Like, they don't like that kind of fruity uh, uh, Democrat militarism. They don't care about that kind of stuff. They, they want to fucking kick ass. Uh, and so they have their own fantasies of, of military domination. And, of course, the Iraq War allowed both sides because they had to, like, the left was destroyed. This was the only politics left. The only way to respond to something like uh, the, the spectacular nature of 9-11 is going to be some mass sacrifice somewhere else. Who's going to pay for this? Both sides want someone to pay for this. And Iraq is a perfect way for both sides to be happy. You can be like, we're saving the Iraqis from a dictator, or you can say we're bombing their ass and taking their gas. It didn't matter. And now part of our real cultural fragmentation and the reason that we have this political crisis in the, our center is that now we can't agree on where to have our collective uh, venting war. The, the, the libs wanted in Ukraine, which stands for Russia, which stands for all bad governance everywhere. Russia stands for Trump, stands for dictatorships, stands for all that is uh, unclean and unvirtuous in politics for the liberals. So, Perfect. And and you don't have to even send U.S. soldiers there for icky uh, ca caskets getting brought back. Nobody wants that. Uh, but for the Republicans, that's no good. They like Russia. Russia's cool. Uh, and they, they cannot imagine fighting Russians as a, as a way to vent their anxieties and frustrations. Now, Mexico, now you're talking. We talked about this last week. So now that's why the new Republican vision of uh, empire is... Uh, redirecting in our powers where they need to be put, which is into protect, to defending the border and and going across the border and trying to and going to war with the cartels that we armed, and and it'll be the exact same thing as when we fucking go blow up Saddam Hussein after we gave him uh, chemical weapons and support during the Iran Iraq War. We went into Panama after we used them as a cutout for drug dealing, and and uh, funding the Contras. We have been piping billions of dollars of weapons there to serve the political purpose of neutralizing a, a uh, challenge to the uh, corrupt 
uh, vassal state that we run down there. And that's why Amlo is such a fascinating figure because he does he is trying to secure a uh, like a a, 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 a a popular poll, not a tra fully transactional poll, but like a popular uh, nationalistic and uh, idealistic challenge to the cartel state that they got there. So perfect time to go in there if his if his power stays as is is difficult to un unlodge as it appears, and if he keeps making noises about privatizing shit like like further privatizing their uh, natural their natural gas and oil industry uh, or their their infra infrastructure, then you're going to have bipartisan elite uh, interest in seeing it carried out. And then one one side can hoot and holler and 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 pass the chips while they're watching Fox News footage of you know cartel guys getting blown up in drone strikes. With all of these standing in for the final dream of apocalyptic annihilation at the hands of a uh, uh, conflict with China. All right, so. This brings us back to the Iraq War, as I the first Iraq War, which in 1991, the year that uh, we made contact, the year that the algorithm became self-aware, the year that the antibodies in the human system against a full takeover of this viral, this viral uh, imperative that was part of a matrix of uh, social realities powering the capitalist state. After 1991, it becomes the only. Uh, thing it dominates everything and it hollows out the body from the inside and we are we we're in there but the reason I say that's not a bummer is because a corpse will grow flowers you know like it's it's we 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 have to get out of the idea that that uh like that the uh, western teleology is real rather than kind of just a, a mental organizing principle like cycles are the dominant reality of life, cycles of death and rebirth and renewal. That is the dialectical process, churning through matter and, and energy. But in my view, it is a circle that is directionally upward, a funnel, if you will. And if you, you see drawings of like the dialectical historical process, it's not a line up, it is a circle, it is a corkscrew up. And we're somewhere aligned along in this corkscrew formation, but we will never know specifically where, and that's fine. But 1991 is when uh, we got, we got terminal, we became terminal. Uh, and we celebrated it, with blowing up uh, a bunch of Iraqi infrastructure and then turning it into trading cards. Yeah, the Iraq war did not take place. Well, tell that to the good people at Desert Storm Pro Set, sir, because to them, it very much happened. So let's start here. We've got a military asset in the armory, armor and artillery category. It is the M60 main battle tank. Look at this bad boy. I gotta say... I really like the, the the shape of this guy. I like that big old cannon coming out of the front. It's pretty badass. Like the M60. I don't really like the Abrams as much. Uh, so the mainstay of American armor since the mid-60s, the M60 replaced the slower and smaller M48. Uh... Armed with the larger 105mm gun for more firepower. Yeah, that's right. The M60 had substantially improved armor protection, yet its road speed and range were comparable to the lighter tank. An important part of Operation Desert Storm, the M60 MBT performed well in the ground war. And as I said last week, there were some tank battles, as uh, Walter Subject had predicted. You did see some tank battles, you know. But a bunch of figures trying to find reverse on a Soviet tank, it's, it's just not the same. 
Uh, and then here are the specs. Manufacturer, Detroit Arsenal, Tank General Dynamics. Armament, 105 millimeter gun, 1.17 uh, 6, 7.62 millimeter machine gun, 112.7 millimeter machine gun for anti-aircraft defense. Speed, 30 miles per hour. Range, 298 miles. Crew, 4. So I'm assuming the Abrams was bigger than that one. This guy's like a little, little zooping around, zipping around, zapping around. All right, here we go. Next one. And it's the military skill of health and hygiene. Wash your ass, folks. Wash your ass. You better be washing your ass. Uh, if you can't see this, it's got a canteen, it's got a, a towel, it's got a, uh, it's got a generic stick of deodorant and a uh, a silver bucket. I gotta say, if I was a kid and I got this one, I would be bummed. I don't think anybody is trading for this one at the lunch table. Soldiers in the field learn quickly that staying shape, staying clean keeps them in fighting shape. A clean pair of socks every day and proper bathing wards off athlete's foot, trench foot, and other painful conditions. Underclothing loses its insulating qualities after use and must be changed. Combat, so, combat soldiers often use their helmets as a basin to sponge bathe and have orders to brush their teeth at least once a day. That is a standing order in the fucking army is wash your goddamn teeth. Cleanliness and health add up to top military or top to top performance every day. So that yeah, they had to tell the, the kids wash your ass, which reminds me that apparently there has been just a complete collapse in hygiene and basic human functionality of uh, military recruits now. Like they have to put signs out, like at the cafeterias, they have to put out uh, signs with colors on them to uh, tell the kids how much of it they're supposed to eat. So, like, they don't just eat 500 chicken fingers. So, like, chicken fingers is is red. So, like, just have a few chicken fingers. And then, you know, like a carb or, a, or vegetables, it's like, that's green. Go for it. So you probably do have to remind them to wash the ass. So, yeah, can you imagine, like, yeah, you, 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 you join the, the army, and then there's the cafeteria, and you just eat 50 chicken fingers. You're just like, oh, this is wonderful. All right, here we go. Personnel, U.S. Marine Warrior. Oh, baby. U.S. Marine Warrior. This is a shitty photo. This is one of the worst photos. Uh... Yeah, it's like it's a it's a it's very it's from a distance, it's blurry, you can't see his face. He's like going over what appears to be a wall, there's a flame in the front. It's supposed to be an action shot, it's absolutely incoherent. It stinks. This is a terrible card. Thumbs down, just from a design perspective. US Marines train to be infantry first. They are taught that they will face nine common elements in combat. Violent sights and sounds. Oh boy. So wait a minute. So they get trigger warnings in the Marine Corps? You go to fucking Wake Island and Gunnery Sergeant Hartman is giving you a trigger warning? Listen here, maggots! You will experience violent sights and sounds, casualties, confusion and lack of information, feeling of isolation, communication breakdowns, discomfort and fatigue, fear and stress, continuous operations and homesickness, imposter syndrome, no, I made up imposter syndrome. Five characteristics enable Marines to overcome fear. Morale, discipline, esprit de corps, proficiency, and motivation. So wait a minute. So uh, one of the things that motivates uh, overcoming fear is motivation? Okay. The pro proficiency I can understand. And who doesn't love esprit de corps? Which just means hanging with your boys. All right, here we go. We got a government. Hmm, interesting. Iraqi system. I don't know. This is a little problematic. It's just a guy on a camel. 
in darkness again. These things are very, uh, there's very, there's few, I kind of realized that they probably do this to avoid having to license anyone's image. So like, there's no pictures of people in, in uh, focus really in any of this. There's a few, but it's, it's very rare. That's probably, it's probably a way to save money. Spokes, smokes person Joe Camel. Uh, Iraqi system. The Iraqi government is a republic, broadly speaking, since the chief of state is not a monarch. Since a coup d'etat in July 1968, Iraq has been governed by decrees of the Arab Ba'ath Socialist Party through the Council of Command. The president, Saddam Hussein, leads the council and the council of ministers. I guess, yeah, like they didn't want to put Saddam on the card. What, they thought kids would think he was cool? This is very different from the second Iraq war where they were selling those fucking trading cards that they had of all the war criminals. You could write a fucking book about those two uh, different card sets that you could buy about those two wars. And, like, this representing, you know, like, mid-century, all oh, G's Americana, like, oh, gee whiz, you know, like, um, a modernist popular culture. Because, you know, baseball cards, put them in the spokes of your bicycle, ride them down to the phosphate shop. Uh, and on your news, on your, uh, on your um, paper route. But then by 2003, the, the, the 90s happened, the end of history, the, uh, the Gen X, or the rise of Gen X, and now you're putting war criminals uh, on a deck of trading, playing cards. Like, it's fully ironized. Here we go. Oh, my God. Geography. Netherlands. They're talking about the Dutch now. The Dutch, there it is, the Netherlands, the low countries, or at least some of them. Uh, I mean, we've said this before, but the most successful criminal enterprise in history is the Dutch Republic. Those motherfuckers raped the entire world, started a process that would see the despoilation of all human value, <laughs> and it's turned into abstract uh, dead trinkets to be traded by uh, a dwindling band of European sex pests. Uh, and now they have a nice, incredibly walkable series of uh, of medieval cities and, and charming bistros and uh, legal weed. Fucking swamp Germans, man. Kingdom of the Netherlands. The Netherlands, utilizing much land reclaimed from the sea by drainage, drainage, lies in... Northwestern Europe on the North Sea. Formed by the Congress of Vienna in 1815, the Netherlands became a charter member of the United Nations in 1945. For Operation Desert Storm, the Netherlands contributed air and naval units. Well, I hope naval units, and you know, they're famously a seafaring people. It was um, more than almost anything. Uh, it was the development of um, naval uh technology and specifically advances in um, fishing boat design that drove the uh, innovative engine of uh, Dutch like uh, economic power. Like what allowed them to create this incredibly uh, rich trade economy was that they had this industrial proto-industrial process for uh, fishing and then processing, uh, fish for market because there's a big problem when you're fishing cod and whatnot you gotta get it very quickly uh, to a processing facility or it goes bad which limits how much you can actually get in your boat before you have to return to harbor they, the Dutch created these giant floating fish processing plants that allowed for the uh, capture of uh, fish and their immediate processing which meant that you could stack them up and stay out longer. And so you're getting you're getting wage laborers, wage laboring fishermen coming in here instead of you know people who own their own boats, and the attendant economic activity of that. You have this huge amount of uh, fish, which is in huge demand. It's like it is the uh, it is the most uh, portable, fungible protein source in Europe. So it's a huge demand everywhere and you are the you are the funnel point. Uh, so they were able to just 
uh, stockpile capital in a huge way, which allowed them to then turn it into eventually the stock certificates of the East and West Indian Company. Okay, this is interesting. Were the Dutch the least horrific of the global empires? This is one of those deals where you could say, like, just by numbers, yeah, because the Dutch never really held any that much territory for that long. Uh, and they didn't have, they, they other than South Africa, they didn't really have any, like, settler colonies. Well, and I'm sorry, and New Amsterdam, but they lost that one. Uh, well, that's the thing. They lost it very early, so they couldn't really develop the stuff. But, I mean, when you're the first, or one of the first, you know, like it was the Portuguese, too, one of the very first uh, powers to, like, embed these structures, you know, like, create this, wind up this hurdy-gurdy that pulls humans out of uh, West Africa and into the Caribbean in exchange for fucking molasses and go into uh, Europe for a uh, species, like, uh, that's got to be very uh, high-level crime that can't be made up for by the fact that other people ended up, you know, racking up higher numbers. They were doing it in structures of your uh, design. Right, like that's it. They had South Africa and they had New, New Amsterdam and a few islands in the Caribbean, but like Indonesia, that they didn't really try to settle that. Oh man, the Swedes, Delaware. They showed up late. Uh, when they were at their most ambitious, and then it all kind of fell away. All right, here we go. Uh, the Republic, another geography one, the Republic of Niger. Oh, wait a minute. Did I even read this? Yeah, I did. I didn't read this one, did I? Oh, right. I didn't read the, the uh, I didn't read the Netherlands... Stats, which are important. Geographical area, 15,770 square miles. Population, 14.8 million. Language, Dutch. Predominant religions, Roman Catholicism and Dutch Reformed Protestantism. More the latter than the former, although at this point, Islam more than either of them in, in terms of like a religion people actually believe in. Capital, Amsterdam. Government type, parliamentary democracy with a constitutional monarch. Head of government, Prime Minister Ruud Lubers. Guy's name was Rude Lubers, R-U-U-D-L-U-B-B-E-R-S. These people are a prank on the world, the fucking Dutch. Rude Lubers. Kindly fuck out of here. Directly out of my asshole. Okay, so we got geography. Another country, Niger here. Niger. A former French colony, Niger, gained its independence in 1958. Its geography is strongly influenced by the Sahara. Arable land, constituting 3%, supports peanuts, cotton, and millet. Uranium is a principal export. Trading partners include France, Nigeria, and Japan. In recent years, drought and famine have plagued the country. Nigeria is a member of the United Nations and the coalition forces. So I think Nigeria just like signed a card. Nigeria just signed a card. They were passing a card around at the UN, and they signed it, and... Nobody expected them to send anybody. Geographical area, 489,206 miles, square miles. Population, 7.9 million. Languages, French, Hausa, Songhai, and Arabic. Predominant religions, Islam, animism, Christianity. Capital, Naimai. Government type, republic, military regime since 1974. Head of government, President Alf Saibu. Not as funny as Rude Lubers. Oh, boy, Niger. The Sahel, man. That that area is uh, fucked. It's pretty terrifying to think about. Okay, here we go. Uh, we got a military asset, a warbird, the Mirage 2000. The Mirage 2000. Oh, yeah, the Songhai dynasty was fucking... Uh, they were, they were absolutely five-star pimps, no question. Uh, Masa Musa fucking causing uh, uh, hyperinflation everywhere he went because he was throwing so many fucking uh, fat racks around on his way to Mecca.
The Mirage 2000 Warbird, used by both the French and the United Arab Emirates Air Forces. The Mirage is a Delta Wing interceptor and air superiority fighter, but is hampered in anything other than a defense role by its high fuel consumption and large wing. You fucking assholes with your giant wings sucking up all your energy. Limited in attack... Limited in attack mode, it is, however, able to carry air-to-surface exoshet. Is it? I have never seen this pronounced. I've already. I've read it in a bunch of Tom Clancy books. It's exoshet airship or ASMP cruise missiles. Exoshet anti-ship missiles. They're always shooting those off in Tom Clancy books, but I don't think I've ever seen it or heard it said. Set exoset exoset. Okay. Uh, this is very funny because. So this is a French air. This is a French uh, fighter, right? Uh, that they sold to the uh, UAE, and the French and the French are part of the coalition. But they're still. This is like this isn't later when they didn't uh, go along. They went along with us, and yet this card is still just owning the Mirage and making fun of it. Like every American piece of equipment is incredibly powerful, dynamic, multi-use, kicks ass. But the fucking Mirage, you know. Is it's hampered in anything other than a defense role by its high fuel consumption and large wing. You know, it's limited in attack mode, but it's able to carry ship-to-ship exoset airship or ASMP cruise missiles. Very condescending. So, like, fuck you, Frenchie. The Mirage ain't shit. We've got another Warbird. The MiG-21 Fishhead. Fishbed? Fishbed. Fishbed? That is a hell of a name. Yes, it's the MiG-21 Fishbed. It's a fishbed, folks. What do you want? What do you want? It's a fishbed. Look. The Soviet Union was having a hard time, okay? They were having a hard time thinking of names. The Iraqi Air Force has more MiG-21s than any other aircraft at the beginning of Operation Desert Storm. Primarily a swept-winged fighter... The MiG-21 can be used as a bomber or reconnaissance aircraft, but a combat load limits its range. A Mach 2 aircraft at higher altitudes, the MiG-21 fishbed slows considerably in a low-altitude attack mode. Also, kind of catty about the MiGs. You fucking... You suck, you MiGs. Fuck you, you MiGs, bitch. Oh, so this is not what the Russians called it. This is what the Americans call it. This is like how the, the, uh, the Lakota... Did not call themselves Sioux. Sioux is like a pejorative name from their uh, their tribal rivals. So we're using the American name. So there you go. I don't know what they called it, but we called it the fish bed. And according to them, it's not that great. All right, here we go. Military skill. Women in combat. Yeah, that's right. See, here it is. Even in the shell of like the Reagan Bush uh you know reactionary empire state we have the glimmerings of the coming uh Clintonite millennial liberal military you, you see it coming women's women military skill is not restricted to men Women are represented in all branches of the U.S. military. Although legally banned from combat, women served in support roles, including resupply and transportation. Their close proximity to the front lines of a modern war put them in the same risk as their male counterparts. It's the same risk. They're right there. I mean, in it's kind of funny because it's like, yeah, sure, you're correct. But in the Iraq War, that in the first uh, Persian Gulf, the Persian Gulf War, that means basically no danger at all. Oh my God, the risks. Here we go. Personnel. United States Air Force. Highway to the danger zone. Do, do, do. Highway to the danger zone. I know that, that I know that was the Navy. I know that was not the Air Force. But it's still a fun song to sing. And they should honestly abolish the Air Force. It was stupid that they made it and they should get rid of it. The names Rickenbacker, Mitchell, Doolittle, Vandenberg, Arnold, and LeMay are synonymous with the history of the U.S. Air Force. And props to them for putting LeMay in there. Yeah, the guy who, like, massacred half a million uh, Japanese people, he's our guy. 
Until September 1947, America's air power was with the Army, Navy, and Marine services. Today's U.S. Air Force grew out of the U.S. Army's early 1900s Flying Corps reconnaissance aircraft. The true potential of air warfare was evident throughout World War II. On January 16, 1991, the strength of America's air power was demonstrated in Operation Desert Storm. That's certainly true. We did show that in certain circumstances, you could just fucking drop a shit ton of bombs and just go home. Uh, this is a... the top. See, here we go. This is a perfect example of why they don't want to license names. Uh, you've got this picture of, you know sunset cockpit and then underneath it where you would think would be you know above it says top officer chief of staff of the air force general merrill a mcpeak why wouldn't you just put a picture of merrill mcpeak in here because you don't want to pay for him you don't want to drop any cash on merrill mcpeak and finally this is a hilariously anticlimactic way to end the show today. Canada! Oh, yes. Our America Junior, helping out. Sorry for all those times we tried to invade you and take you over. Uh, no hard feelings. Will you come help us blow up a Middle Eastern country together? Oh, yeah, no problem, eh? Uh, oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry, I misread this. It's even more be it's even better than that. Uh, and it definitely tells me that they must have needed to pad a ton of these cards with uh, content because this isn't Canada. This is the Canadian national anthem. This it's just the anthem of a country that stuck along that like tagged along. And I guess now I have to sing it. Uh, by the way, I would just like to say that Canada, I make fun of them, of course, America Junior, but they have a better anthem than us, and they have a better flag also. Since 1980, the national anthem of Canada has been O Canada. Before then, the official anthem had been God Save the King or Queen. O Canada was written by Calais Lavelle, 1842-1891, in 1880, for a contest held by a French-Canadian organization to select a national anthem. The words in French were written later by Sir Adolphe Rothier, but did not gain wide acceptance until 1908, when they were translated into English by R.S. Weir. Interesting. Oh, Canada started off as a French song. I wonder if that annoys the separatists. So they didn't have the lyrics to it, uh, which is good, because I realized that I don't actually know how it goes after the first line. I know it's, oh, Canada, our home and native land, true patriot love at all our sons command. And then there's some other stuff, but I don't know exactly how it sounds. Like, I don't know what the melody is. So probably for the best. You got enough. You got enough of that song. In all of us command, and not in all our sons command? Okay, didn't know that. Someone says it sounds better in French. I'm sure it does. I mean, they've got the best national anthem, the French do, the, the actual French do. So it would make sense that the Quebecois would put up a good anthem. The Soviet national anthem is amazing. I love it, but I still th I think I might give the La Marseille the edge, just barely. To me, it goes the uh, Marseille, the Soviet national anthem, and then in the International, which is good, but not as good.
I gotta listen to the East German national anthem, apparently. Someone's asking about Sudan. I have no idea what's going on over there. You got it. You got it. This looks like a, a little brewing civil war. Can't imagine that's going to be uh, less common in the coming years. Did Serbia just get mass shootings? So now we know how, how fashion gets to the, uh, the former Eastern Bloc. Well, I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that the continued export of American cultural objects is is going unimpeded. Good news. And now the Serbs are giving up their guns. <coughs> now they're gonna get they're gonna get caught lacking. The Albanians are going to fucking win the cat-lacking challenge against Serbia if they do this. Somebody's asking about like did the did Serbia have it coming? Uh, that uh, did they deserve to be bombed or whatever? To me, and this is, I mean, I know that he's now problematic, obviously, and he ha was before for other uh, more banal reasons. But Chomsky's uh, sp the specific point that Chomsky made that has gotten him called a genocide desire, uh, both in the seventies and in the nineties, was to when asked about. Uh, like Vietnamese, uh, or when asked about uh, the Cambodia, would say they're killing a million, they killed a million uh, communists and uh, predominantly Chinese, uh, ethnic, like ethnic Chinese communists in Indonesia at the same time, or uh, uh, just slightly before. Or, I'm sorry, no. Uh, they were killing everybody in East Timor at that point. And they already killed a million uh, uh, largely Chinese communists. In Indonesia and it's like well if that's the case then the entire premise of the question is uh, reduced to absurdity morality doesn't enter in because we know that there is no line there is no existential line being crossed with the behavior and the point made in the 90s in the same parallel is that I said this earlier in the show there was a extended uh, air and ground offensive against restive Kurdish uh, provinces in uh, south eastern Turkey uh, in uh, southwestern Turkey uh, in this the exact same time that we were bombing Serbia and using the exact same sort of techniques that the Serbs were using. So again, if that's the case, then what are we really what is the real question here? Because if they also deserved it and didn't get that treatment, the Turks didn't get intervened on, then we're not talking about a real moral line that anyone with any, any in any position of power actually cares about. So what does talking about it serve? It serves to vindicate a fantasy of a morally guided foreign policy. All right. 
on that fun topic. I'll sign off for this week. See you guys soon. Bye-bye.